you're just joining us for Winter Sunday School this uh, term, we're going through this uh, rather huge question about what it means to be the church in the world um, and what it looks like for us to call ourselves Christians in the midst of the world. Uh, We began our study by trying to frame out what is the primary social identity for a Christian. That is, what am I as a Christian? You are a member of the church. You are called out from the people uh, that God has created to be his unique possession. And therefore, the church has this very different uh, distinctiveness in the world. Uh, But then there's also this realm that Christians are spoken of as living, um, uh, called the uh, called the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is a broader realm. It's a uh, a sense in which the place where God's actual kingship over all areas of life, as He established uh, at the resurrection, uh, is coming to actual fruition and actual visibility. So the question for our series has been this whole time: What does it mean then to be the church advancing the kingdom? And what I'll try to encourage you with is just the mere adoption of those languages, of those two ideas, will really help you when you're thinking about what your responsibility is uh, and our, meaning Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford, what our responsibility is in terms of what we should be doing in the world. Uh, I had a guy a number of years ago drop a little line that I thought was extremely helpful. Uh, He said, you know, no one is lacking of great ideas. In other words, once you start to take leadership over an organization and uh, people start sort of getting ideas together and all they to do this, there's usually no lack of great ideas. The question, though, of an organization that becomes great is one that's like, yeah, but what are our ideas? <laughs> because just because someone has a good idea doesn't mean it's necessarily your good idea. And I would venture to say there's a large percentage of our intra-Christian headbutting <laughs> that goes on because God has called us to serve in different places. Does that make sense? And so we're trying to unpack some of these ideas as we plow through it. Uh, so I was, uh, I was at our usual lunch place. Uh, we go to Nukes every Sunday and pick up lunch and take it home, get back into our pajamas and rest for the rest of the day. But um, I saw Ray Tannehill. It was very helpful, a quick question. He was like, look, I'm getting all this data and stuff, but is there a way for you to kind of come back with like the big points you're wanting us to get from the last few weeks uh, lessons. And I was like, you know what? That's a really good idea. So what I want to do is just do sort of a uh, takeaways thus far uh, that I want us to try to grasp at as we kind of plow through this thing. So let me see if I can uh, point out some of these. The first thing that I tried to um, get across to you is, is that theological liberals tend to dissolve the church out into the world. And when they do so, you lose the church's distinctiveness. The church's distinctiveness is tied very much to the person, the historical person of Jesus. And once you lose the great theology of the church and those huge truths, you dilute our distinctiveness in the world. Secondly, we said that theological conservatives will then absorb the kingdom into the church. That is, there's this assumption, this is huge, that if something good is going to be done in the world, it needs to be funneled through the offices of the church. And we tried to say that that's not the case. Because if you take that to its logical end, the church becomes this really medieval model where it tries to take over every area of life. And that wasn't such a good time, I would argue. By the way, you'll notice that this is something that, that, that is kind of fun to do. Um, I, I think as the church sort of goes forward, and we, we do a little bit of a reset button uh, here in the next few years with a new property and, and foolish new leadership. Um, LAUGHTER We really ought to be able to confound the world about whether we fit into those neat categories of liberal or conservative. That is, there's going to be people on both sides that don't like us. Um, Jesus was like that, so let's consider ourselves in good company there. But then we said that the church, though, should major in her majors and let go of her minors. Major in her major, in other words, take back the things that we know God has very uniquely called us to do, but let go of the things that are not part of our Uh, responsibility directly. Who do we let those responsibilities go to? They go to individuals who in their own networks find, with the broad guidance of kingdom principles, ways to work out the truth in the world. And we're going to try to work out that truth in the weeks ahead for the rest of our study through specific topics. Then we started looking at a couple of people that I think have really contributed very well to this conversation. We looked first of all at Andy Crouch, 
who I'll say a little more about in just a second. But Crouch was trying to tell us last week to learn to focus your efforts of change locally. Start local. Start with your world. Start with your inner life, with your marriage, with your family, with your neighbors, your direct neighbors, uh, and your city, your municipality. Um, Secondly, he also said to learn to understand the use of your power, that everyone is given some measure of power to influence the world around them, and that power should be used to create equity and justice. Crouch does a great job identifying the fact that there is not a much larger theme racing through Old Testament prophetical statements than that Christians ought to be those who are the most anxious to create justice in the world. And then finally, Crouch is trying to teach us to see sin not just as a personal thing, I sinned, I did a sin, I'm trying not to sin, but rather that sin as a force, as a power, can enter into institutions to where even if you have all converted people within the institution, the principles, the values, the practices of that institution can themselves be promoting sin. And we don't usually think about that. But it'll change the way you think about your company or your office or your business or your family. We then talked about a guy named James Davidson Hunter who tried to teach us to be a faithful presence in the world. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant by learning to focus on networks of influence. Hunter talks a big deal about how if you look at the history of how God's people have really brought about great change, they've done so when they've networked well. And what he means by that is, is learning to be incarnated, to show up, to enflesh yourself in the lives of those around you. Showing up. In Hunter's view, withdrawal from the world is the great sort of cardinal uh, sin, as it were. Okay? So that's what we're trying to do is to try to build through some of these helpful thinkers some of these uh, parameters uh, around these ideas. So Andy Crouch is still writing. Uh, You need to follow his stuff. He's got a little think tank after he finished with uh, Christianity Today a couple of years ago. Hunter is still writing articles uh, at UVA. Uh, You've got common friends, I can promise you, at UVA who interact with Hunter on a regular basis. But today I also want to spend a good bit of time on the person I think has also made an extraordinary uh, deposit into this uh, world, and that is uh, uh, former New York pastor at Redeemer, uh, uh, Tim Keller. Um, Especially for our world, uh, Keller, I think, has made sort of the biggest footprint in his efforts to talk about culture, uh, having to do a lot with where he is. And he wrote a wonderful article that I really just want to present to you uh, this morning. So this is literally straight from his article. You can find it uh, online on some of his... um, Uh, newsletters that he wrote uh, for uh, Redeemer. And what Keller begins this article by saying is, is that if you watch the Christian church prior to Constantine, that is from Jesus's resurrection and ascension to the time of Constantine, you'll find a sort of curious historical fact that went on. This is not up for interpretation. It's an actual historical fact that said that Christians lived in sort of two different reactions to their existence in the ancient world. On the one hand, Christians were persecuted during those first couple hundred years. They were persecuted for being too narrow. Uh, They were persecuted for being too exclusive in their truth claims. They were persecuted for just being strange. But at the same time, they were an extremely fast-growing movement of people. There's not a whole lot of denying the fact that Christianity spread throughout the ancient world with a speed and efficiency that historians still look at with a curiosity of wondering how it actually happened. They should read the book of Acts and figure all that out, right? And so what Keller sort of begins his article by saying is, is that there has to be an effective missionary encounter. That's my title for today is missionary encounters that people have with the society around them that will always have both of those reactions. And on the one hand, there will often be an offense that's created to some people. They'll be offended when they hear you say the things that Christians say. But there'll also be a group of people, sometimes often the same person, who will be strangely attracted to what you're saying. There'll be confrontation and persuasion. And so what Keller brings out historically is that Christianity didn't adapt to culture in order to gain sort of more adherence, but neither did it remain in some small little uh, exclusive religious club. 
It did both of those things. It confronted and critiqued the culture around him, but it also sort of uh, attracted huge numbers until finally by the time of Constantine, Constantine declares Christianity to be the national religion of the Roman Empire. And it becomes the what? The Holy Roman Empire around Constantine. So what is there to learn from all this? Well, Keller starts to launch into this idea that, that we're still asking the same question about what it means to have a missionary encounter with the world. Because Western culture is doing just is having the same sort of struggle uh, uh, as we had in the very first century. And we may very well find in the next couple uh, generations that we're being more and more marginalized. Uh, the Christians find themselves sort of excluded from conversations about government, about the academy, about uh, corporations and jobs. Social marginalization has been something we haven't necessarily all had to wrestle with in our lifetimes. But it could be coming. And so Keller wants to ask the question, what then can we learn from this early church witness to the world about what it means to have an effective missionary encounter with the world? Well, he launches from this by talking about 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Uh, Keller calls this sort of the original missionary dynamic. This is what missionaries have to expect when he says there in 1 Peter 11, uh, 2, 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's a good one to underline right there. I'm going to come to that in just a second. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Keller says, there you go. If you want a missionary dynamic, that's a fantastic verse. So let's unpack this for a second with just a couple of, uh, couple of points. Number one, notice what Peter says first. He identifies you socially. He gives you a, a, a sort of a, a description of what it means for you to be a social being in the world. Uh, and that is sojourners and exiles. In other words, for a Christian, we have a self-understanding of those that are just passing through. This world is not my home. (laughs) Um, Therefore, I am called to participate in any way in which I can as a citizen of heaven first. I am not first an American. (laughs) I am first a citizen of heaven. That is my primary social identity. And the allegiances that I have to that king can never sort of be undercut by the allegiances that I have to my own earthly kings. Does that make sense? I am a sojourner. That is, a Christian asks the question first and foremost, what does King Jesus ask of me and about me before asking what it means to be a good citizen of their country? Look, that's very radical for a lot of different people, but oftentimes very easy to forget. And I think it's fascinating that what he says is, as a sojourner in exile, one of the best places for you to start is with the demons of your own soul. The demons inside, those those passions of the flesh. And that's the sort of phrase that he's using to describe all of the stuff on the inside, the leftover things inside of me. I love that image. Wage war against your own soul. In other words, uh, Peter is saying he's assuming that every single Christian person, these are Christian people, has a battle going on on the inside. That there's this conflict that that sometimes can feel like you're crazy on the inside. Because there's this one voice over here that is sort of screaming passions of my flesh. Things that even in my sanest moments, I would tell you are horrible for me. (laughs) And yet I'm still marching right on into them. But there's another voice on the inside that's saying to me, uh, no, you know those things are right. Walk away from that. Repent of those things. There's this conflict that wars against your soul. Um, (laughs) I do think there's some value into making an assumption that no matter who walks through the doors of this church, we have some sense in which there's a battle going on. They are battle weary when people walk through the doors of this church. Might be nice to hug that person or pat them on the back. Who knows? And so therefore, we have this identity as sojourners and exiles that sort of creates uh, for us this unique identity. But secondly, 
Peter is, is explaining to us that therefore we live in a world that is a mixed bag. And if there's any one kind of big point, if there's the big takeaway for the morning, this is the one I want you to get. Because it's a theme that once, you, once someone introduces it to you, you begin seeing it like in everywhere in the Bible. Okay? And it's simply this. What is the world like? What is the world around us like? And what Peter says to us is, therefore, there's, there's, there are people that will persecute us. Why? Because there is sin in the world. Sin has entered the world. That means that because there is sin, it means we can hardly trust anything, <laughs> much less ourselves. That the world is wrecked. It's got problems. It's infected everything around us so that we need to expect that when we walk into the craziness of our own souls and the lives of those around us, do not expect for one and one to equal two. Because it doesn't. We cannot go into the world in which we live and hope (laughs) that they're going to fix themselves. Why? Because sin has entered the world. I realize that... um, this is extremely countercultural, especially for Southern Christianity. And we need to own our own struggles uh, with um, uh, uh, cultural Christianity as we've come to know it in our particular lifetime. But you have to recognize that, that owning and, and, and embracing this idea that there's a war inside my own soul, that I am a sinner too, <laughs> is very oftentimes, uh, in other words, trying to keep from admitting that is the reason why people came to church in the first place. In other words, if I go to church and I attend there regularly and I'm a part of that group there, I do that so that no one will ask me whether there's a war inside my soul against my passions of the flesh. In other words, a lot of times we come here because the guys will sort of keep people distracted long enough to be like, oh, no, they are a wonderful person in this church. I mean, they gave our chairs, that front row of those chairs. They, they donated that. They, this person is wonderful. They are totally worthy. This sounds like Luke 7, doesn't it? <laughs> Remember Luke 7 where, where the, uh, the Pharisees go to Jesus and there's this, uh, there's this uh, uh, um, centurion who's got a, sick, uh, a servant and um, the, 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 the religious people are going, oh, you've really got to go help this guy. This guy's wonderful. We love him. He's totally worthy of you being able to do this. Like he even helped us build our synagogue. He made a donation to the building program for Pete's sakes. That's perfect for us. No, we're not going to look on the inside of him to see whether he's worthy or not. But of course, remember what the centurion says? First word out of his mouth to Jesus is like, you know what? You, you, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. Because frankly, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. I'm not even worthy to have you in my, in my house. And Jesus is like, aha, this is the faith that I've not even seen coming out of Israel. The church. <laughs> I've not seen this coming out of the religious people because the religious people, because they're religious, don't want people looking at the fact that there's a war waging on the inside. But we've got to come with that assumption. So we know that there's sin, but secondly, it's a mixed bag, meaning that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has ascended to the throne of the world. And you know what that means? He's fixing the world. The light has broken in. Yes, there is darkness everywhere. There's darkness inside my own soul. But a light has come streaking through the middle of it. And God has revealed himself in these beautiful, remarkable ways to where sometimes in these little tiny cracks of successes, sometimes in big sweeping movements, the truth takes over that there's joy and redemption and healing and forgiveness and righteousness and justice that takes over. Sometimes that happens. And what happens where you get really confused on culture is where you think that one or the other is the way things are. You know what I'm talking about? Well, are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? And a Christian says, yes, I certainly am. (laughs) Because I see all kinds of reason to be totally depressed because there's sin in the world and it's wrecking the world. It's wrecking my life. And I'm also incredibly hopeful I live, here's the phrase that the theologians will throw at you. So this is, your, this is why you came this morning, this is the benefit. <laughs> we live within the already and the not yet. Jesus has already shown up, so we can expect him to be working in the world. We long for him. We look for those places where he's got his fingerprints over every area of life. But it's not yet all here. It's a mixed bag. 
everything is going to be a mixed bag. There is no cultural artifact which will be presented to your senses, which will not have some traces of sin left over in it that we will have to condemn and therefore receive persecution for it. But at the same time, there'll be something because of God's common grace, because of his breaking into the world, that we can commend in that artifact. Does that make sense? So therefore, what Keller ends up saying is, is that we have therefore a world that is already and not yet. And therefore, the the goal, the activity of what Christians are called to do is to be showing up with blessing and cursing. We affirm and we deny. We celebrate and we call out. In other words, the activity of Christians will always be in accordance with the mixture that we're encountering in a given time. Think about the power of this for a second. When you sort of, when something meets to your senses and you encounter it in any kind of interaction, whether it's in your reading or in your politics or on the nightly news or whatever, or in your children's homework, whatever you encounter, you can know that there'll be something in there that will reflect the character of God because God leaves his fingerprints everywhere. And there's a joy that comes from discovering that because it means that you can begin a conversation with someone affirming the things that actually are legitimately good. However, you can also guarantee that because it's in this world in which we live, there's going to be something there that needs to be condemned. And that's true of your own souls. (laughs) You know, I just want to know when I bow down my head, am I a sinner or a saint? Yes. And we'll never know that because at any given time, there are things to be affirmed and things to be condemned. And so what Keller sort of starts to pitch, and this is, a, I don't know, I hesitated whether to even use this sort of fancy, schmancy word, is there's, there's almost a, um, a cultural dialectic. You know what a dialectic is? A, a dialectic is this sort of a, a twin response that looks like opposites. Uh, for those of you philosophy people, remember philosophy 101, you had Hegel, right? Who had a, had a thesis, an antithesis, and then he came to synthesis. That was how all thinking and rationality was done, right? Everybody's like, you know, it's Sunday morning. We're not going to talk philosophy this morning. <laughs> this coffee has not yet made it into my veins right yet, so we're not going to do that. But the point is, is there's always this posture. What is the Christian view on something? Well, shouldn't Christians be the most thoughtful about that? Because we can say, well, I think there's two things we can say. On the one hand, there's something there that we can see as a, as a, as a, as a, gen, um, a genuine response of people to something that in God's world needs to be responded to. But on the other hand, we look and say that sin has marred that and we can't stand for that. And finding our way through that is going to be true for everything. You know what that means? It means that we place the centrality of wisdom in the center of the Christian life. And by the way, it's the one thing that we are guaranteed a yes answer to in multiple occasions in the Bible if we just ask for it. Isn't that interesting? That God says that I will give you wisdom every time you ask. (laughs) And want to know why? Because it's going to be hard. Uh, Tim Keller's sort of contemporary in this, his sort of even more academic uh, sort of um, uh, twin in all this, is a guy named Don Carson, D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament professor uh, up at... um, uh, Trinity Seminary up in Chicago, wonderful Bible uh, uh, teacher, exegete. And, and uh, Carson says in his little book, Christ and Culture Revisited, which is a wonderful little book, a little dense, but it's good, basically says in order to try to find one Christian response to the, uh, to the things that go on in the world around us is always going to be reductionistic. You know, we've done all these views, like what's the liberal view? What's the conservative view? What, who's this guy, Adrian, Abraham Kuyper? And I've never even heard of Andy Crouch. Blah, blah, blah. I just want to know what the view is. What are we supposed to do? And Carson says, well, actually, that's going to be different from different places because God's wisdom has to be moving among people, beginning locally in their own backyard, starts to move differently among different people. And what that means then, according to Keller, is that what we're trying to avoid is either assimilation on the one hand. I mean, let's face it. There are people, it's a temptation for people in church worlds to downplay okay, our distinctives so that we can be more accommodating to the world. That's bad. That's not the reason that we do, it for, that, we do that. But on the other hand, it's equally possible <laughs> that we can sort of come up with one evangelistic model that will save the world. Bum, 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 bum. 
Um, and, and, and churches get locked into that. You get locked into that generationally. So, so why, why, are we, why are we doing things that way? Oh, because that, that's what we've always done. It's who we are. You can get locked into it wherever you, can, wherever you find yourself. But, but again, the church in its best moments has always come along and said we are able to roll with these punches. And so Keller comes along and says, what therefore do we need to know? What are the big takeaways from an effective missionary encounter if we're going to live inside this cultural dialectic? If we're going to be in the already and the not yet, if I'm sinner and saint, what does that look like then going forward? I think this stuff is extremely valuable, uh, and really it's kind of fun to talk about. He mentions five things, and I'll throw them up here as we go through. Number one, he said there needs to be new Christian defense for both smart people and simple people. Notice you don't ever call someone dumb. You call them simple, right? I am simple. I like to think of myself as simple. And Keller goes into this great historical discussion that when you look at the early church fathers, they were really good at doing what we might call high apologetics. Apologetics is the study of how to defend the faith to those people who have objections against it, right? And there's a sense in which uh, uh, early on, you had guys like Augustine, uh, uh, Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and the rest of them, who looked at the culture around them and basically tried to deal with the exclusivity of Christian beliefs by saying, look, not only do our Christian beliefs... um, not in any way take away from the social fabric, I actually think it actually upholds it all. And what they, in other words, Christians can do better at keeping a society together, Augustine was arguing, than can your polytheism, that there's a million gods that are warring against each other somewhere in the heavens. That was a powerful cultural argument that these guys were making, but probably more high-minded, right? Sort of smarty-pants kind of arguments. But Keller says there also needs to be low-level, street-level apologetics. He says, you know what that involves? Getting people to learn how to tell their stories. It's fantastic. I love this idea. Over and over again, he says, we need to have an explosion of memoir apologetics. You know what memoir apologetics are? It's just you figuring out how to tell your story. Um, and, and let me address one small little thing. I, this came up to me this morning while I was kind of running through these notes. I, I was one of those people that had the boring testimony. You ever had that, that expression be told to you? I just feel like I have a boring testimony. I, don't, I wasn't on drugs or whatever. The funny thing is, the more boring your testimony is when you're 20s, the more dramatic it is in your 50s. This I have learned in the month that I've been 50. Um, it's because, it, yeah, that boredom can go sour. Um, but the point is, the boring testimony is a fascinating sort of way of talking to people, I think, because it's saying, look, there was never a time where I didn't know and have an awareness of Jesus's influence in my life and my heart and my family. He's always, he's always been exerting pressure and praise the Lord. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. You're not one of the have nots on the cool testimony things. A testimony is not, I was really, really, really awful. And then I met Jesus and now I'm awesome. That is, not your, that is not a testimony. A testimony is, this is how I see him walking with me day in and day out. And you want to know what a testimony also is? A testimony is equally, and there's lots of days where I don't see or feel him at all. And my testimony is simply to say, to be frank with you, like any real relationship, I'm kind of struggling with him right now. It's hard today because I don't understand why he would allow the pain in my life that he's allowing. I don't understand why I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for something that I know he should want. The salvation of my children, the healing of a loved one, the, 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 the rejoining of a broken marriage. I want those things. I keep praying for him. He won't answer him, right? <clears throat> but to simply express to someone that you're in the midst of a journey where you're saying, but you know what? He's never left me in the past, and I'm just thinking that he's going to find me in the midst of this somewhere. Keller's saying, and I think it's very powerful, that that alone is an extraordinarily powerful thing to bring to people. He then goes on to talk about <clears throat> finding ways to talk to people about the deep logic of Christian sexuality, uh, which we're coming to in just a second. And then also doing public apologetics about um, the church repenting of past failures in public and telling the world that we're sorry because we failed at X and Y generation. Okay? So Christian defense for smart people and the simple. 
Number two, he says, we need to learn to build a Christian counterculture. A counterculture. That is, since the church is this intersection of heaven and earth, this place where we are most vividly living with this, uh, uh, these uh, truths, we should begin to build an alternate society here among this place. We're starting, and what a crazy thing to tell somebody that they're signing up for. We want to welcome you into this. <laughs> welcome to the cult. Um, shave your head. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's, that's right. <clears throat> Brian took it seriously. Um, I'm in. That's right. Um, we're trying to say that we're actually building an alternate society, a whole different way of looking at the world around us. And Keller says it'll involve a handful of things. Number one, it should be a counterculture that is marked, first of all, by shocking multi-ethnicity. Shocking multi-ethnicity. In other words, one of the greatest sort of um, uh, facts that, that rarely makes it to the front pages of news is that by far Christianity is the most culturally and racially diverse religion in the world, especially of the major three monotheistic religions, especially and again, some, some, some sort of secularist would look at me like, yeah, well, that's where you're religious. Look at how we secularists over here, look how diverse we are. Are you, though? <laughs> I don't hear a whole lot of, like, talking across the aisle coming from y'all's side. Christianity is somehow able to create an extraordinary sort of a mix of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, as it was predicted over and over again in the book of Revelation. But, of course, the Western church doesn't look so multi-ethnic in its culture. And therefore, as we create this counterculture, we ought to be looking to hear from all the voices of even the people who are marginalized from our own fellowships. We ought to be hearing from those people's voices, not because it's the liberal cultural value flavor of the month. That's not the reason why. Jesus said it would be a sign of his kingdom when people began to hang out with people for no other reason than the fact that we have the gospel in common. That's a, that's a great little, a little spiritual inventory to do at the beginning of 2018. Lord, are there people that you will call me into friendship with that I would otherwise have no relationship whatsoever if it weren't for you? Right? And those should be bringing you to those mouths. Number two, he says, we should be pioneers in civility. <laughs> Bear with me. You can see why he wrote this. He says, look, the earliest Christians were viciously persecuted. But they practice forgiveness and non-retaliation. Over and over again, you do not see sort of uh, the uh, Western Christians taking the example of these early Christians by sort of not looking for ways to retaliate or ways to gain sort of naked power. Christians should be peacemakers and avoid the temptation, Keller says, to sit in the seat of the scornful from Psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits, nor, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of a scoffer. You know what a scoffer is, don't you? The person's like, whatever, whatever. It's the person that every time something good comes up, you kind of got to go and just throw a wet blanket all over it. How often can the church become something like that? And Keller says that's got to get wrong. Number three, he says we should become famous for our generosity care for the poor, commitment to justice in society. The church should be well known as the main institution for working to organize poor and marginal communities to advocate for their own interests with local municipalities and with governments. (laughs) Okay, now bear with me. Here he goes. I knew he was a liberal. I knew he was. Listen, why is it that Christians felt motivated to have their eyes trained upon the poor in their communities? Why? Because we get them. Because he, who was rich, became poor for our sakes so that he could make us rich. Catch that little dynamic right there. (laughs) I get the poor. I just get them. I know what that's like. I've had a spiritual experience of what you're experiencing materially. And so therefore it creates commonality. And that commonality begins to affect our community. And then finally, he says, we therefore should be committed to the sanctity of life and being a sexual counterculture. Now, this is complicated. But there's a sense in which we've got to be sancti- committed to the sanctity of life and not just issues surrounding the pro-life movement and abortion. That one, I think, is a little easy when it comes to the question of whether a Christian should or should not be about that. The question comes, do we care about the sanctity of all lives, not just the lives of the unborn? 
but the sanctity of lives of all kinds of people who are at all kinds of different stations. And then secondly, have we found a way to sort of speak to the world about that one of the reasons why we may be experiencing this sort of intense emotional and psychological stress is because this great gift that God has given us of sexuality is being so um, um, misshapen and miscast that it's actually doing great harm to people. And we should have compassion on those people and know that we are sexually broken ourselves and find ways to bring it uh, onto the table. So uh, Keller says, those are probably four great challenges for the church to wrestle with in the future, you know, in, in being a counterculture, uh, looking at uh, multi-ethnicity, uh, civility in public discourse, and uh, generosity for the poor, and uh, commitment to the sanctity of life and sexual ethic. Thirdly, he says, to be a faithful presence within our vocation. Uh, he, he says, basically, we have to work harder at gaining a doctrine of vocation, a doctrine of what your work means and why it's glorifying to God. I, mean, I don't know about you, but every Sunday night, I go through a little bit of a depression because it's like, ah, back to the daily grind tomorrow. And, and Keller says, we've got to find a way of being present in our field that we really have a sense of saying, I'm just doing my teeny tiny little part. I am here to bring order where there was disorder. And if that's nothing but a spreadsheet, then so be it. (laughs) Uh, If that's nothing but a a, a little piece of terra firma that looks prettier than after I got started with it, great, so be it. But also there's big things. Keller suggests that we need to rethink a reformation of capitalism. Keller does this in other places, not in this article. He talks about the, what he calls the, um, the iniquity tax. You ever heard somebody talk about iniquity tax? Iniquity tax is how much it costs your company to deal with uh, lying, cheating, and graft within your own company. <laughs> Companies are spending large chunks of money just to monitor their own companies to keep people from stealing, robbing, destroying, and doing whatever. And Keller's like, that's fat. It is crazy numbers. Like 10 to 15% GNP is going to this iniquity tax that every company has to pay. And Keller's like, that actually might be an interesting thing to talk about reformation, uh, that maybe being honest on my time card might actually bring the iniquity tax down. It'd be a great, be a great platform to run on. We're going to run, you know, contra the iniquity tax. Talks about a reformation of politics, restoring not just centrism, but the ability to have a bipartisan conversation. He also says a reformation of the academy, the media, the academy. Good night. i got to stop on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to create the ability to have disagreement again in the public square on university campuses. This is what we call a problem. Because the second that you begin to voice something that makes anyone feel uncomfortable, they label that as hate speech. And, and watch the marginalization of things. And the funny thing is, is it's not just from conservatives or liberals. It's there's no more discourse. People are afraid to even express and own ideas or even try ideas out. The media. Look, <laughs> again, commend and condemn. There's always going to be something here. On the one hand, Christians should be the first one to celebrate the gift that is the freedom of the press. You do realize that when totalitarian regimes take over, the first thing they take over is the press so that they can keep ideas from being presented to you. It is, a, it, is a, it is a value, it is a cultural good that's there. Why? Because it creates accountability. Why do we need accountability? Because the world is sinful. But on the other hand, it is so hard for whether you're Fox News or CNN to resist the shamelessness of, of the shamelessness of assuming that there is no such thing as objectivity, so I'm going to be blindly partisan and, and, and spin my, my version of it. It's hard to resist that temptation, at least given the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. A reformation in the arts and technology. The arts, learning to tell great stories. All right, got to hurry here. Let me finish this up. Number four, (laughs) Keller says, everything is evangelism. To develop an evangelistic stance towards the world. Keller's little phrase that he started using now is um, is that Christians come into the world with a posture of subversive fulfillment. This is a great little phrase when you unpack it. Subversive fulfillment. In other words, what he says is, is we simply go to the world and we say to them, 
I want you to know I affirm your aspirations. You would like there to be justice in the world. You, would, you hope that there is equity among human beings. And you know what? I agree with you. I think the God of the universe does. My, my, my desire for that is not, is not arbitrary. I think it comes from the very heart and mind of God. So you are accurate in that sense. But your application of wanting to do that by the neutralizing any religious influence in our society, <laughs> I can't get behind. I've got to condemn that. But I tell you what, I want to try to show you how your aspiration to create justice will never be fully realized until you see it in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, you're thinking to yourself, uh, how, how does it do that? And the answer is, I don't know. But aren't we having a far more interesting conversation now? Looking to find the way in which this person is after things that you can actually get behind. But because they've not seen it in Jesus, uh, they've not discovered that. Keller says this, The gospel relates to other religions and worldviews by subversive fulfillment. That is, the gospel fulfills our culture's deepest aspirations, but only by contradicting the distorted and idolatrous means that the world uses to satisfy them. Aha! See, I commend what you're saying, but I want to show you that only what you're after will only be attainable in Christ. That's the apologetic we're trying to form. And then finally says, we've got to rethink Christian formation in a digital age. Christian formation is a little bit of a buzzword uh, that gets used to talk about what it means to get someone from the moment of their conversion to what people might define as Christian maturity, (laughs) Uh, whenever that might be, uh, when they die. But Christian formation is part of what it means for us to grow, to be changing, to be uh, uh, moving. And Keller says, look, the early church worked very hard to create vibrant Christians who honestly had very different priorities concerning money and sex and in all kinds of other places. He digs up some historian, uh, Alan Kreider, never heard of, who says basically the early Christians spent three years in catechetical training. They were being catechized. They, They had a little question and answer study tools that we use from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a little document. Um, he says, these guys, these early Christians used to force people to go through that for three years before they would allow themselves publicly to call themselves Christians. Well, look, I'm not advocating to go back to that, but I am saying that every Christian community has learned to do, that we've got to pass on what we've learned to the next generation. Part of our goal is to be so uh, steeped in the truth of Christianity ourselves that we also sort of know how to embrace it uh, uh, among others, and to pass it along to our children. Catechetical training, strength of community and relationships. The early church saw the relationships that existed here. We saw how we carried each other in the midst of the pain of death and sickness and injustice and fear in the world, and they were drawn through it. And then finally, Kreider says, they were drawn in by rich worship. Now look, <laughs> how much time is he at? Okay, two minutes. Rich worship was an early Christian uh, uh, formational issue. Because if you think about it, you're always fashioned by what you worship. I venture to say that depending on the the, the measure of antagonism or agreement that you have with your children in your house, there's a measure of a sense in which your kid is kind of getting into stuff because you're kind of into it. Um, I'm going to pick on Brian for a minute. He didn't know it was going to be an illustration this morning, but... It's so great to watch the, the upbringing of young Clark Sorgenfried. And, you know, young Clark has to be educated in the eternal heartbreak uh, that it is to be an old Miss football fan. And uh, so you watch Brian gently fashion that soul uh, into someone who's ready to live with this disappointment um, uh, time in, time out. What, what is it? Our children tend to pick up the things that we're into because the things we're into is what we worship. See where I'm going with this? So when we come together to worship, we are saying, come worship with us. Look, you do this for everything. Probably tomorrow morning you will walk into work and you will say to someone, did you see that game? You will evangelize about that thing that you're into. Did you see the latest episode of so-and-so? We binged watch such-and-such. You are always an evangelist of whatever it is you worship. You praise it all the time. 
And so therefore, God's people have always worked very hard to understand what we are about to do in our worship service. And to what degree is it showing the world that we're here to celebrate? Because <laughs> this is awesome. And even when, the, even when the rebels lose, it's still a little bit awesome because they're your, they're your team, right? It's not that awesome. <laughs> that illustration didn't go over that well. But then the last thing Keller says is we've got to live with the fact that communication technology has created a digital era, that people can absorb thousands of words and hundreds of ideas in, a, in, in an hour because of what social media and the Internet has done to the exchange of information. And those ideas have the power to undermine uh, face-to-face interaction that we might have with someone. So how do we form something that's distinctly Christian? He says a couple things. He says we have to have new tools of catechesis that actually present all the basic ideas of Christian truth as a direct contrast to the narratives of late modern culture. In other words, he says we need to sort of find catechisms, more than just one, there's more than just one, there ought to be more than just one, that help people give answers to what the culture might bring to them. Uh, Keller and Carson and a number of the people from the Gospel Coalition Network, uh, the Together for the Gospel people, uh, began to put together something called the New City Catechism. And I would warmly commend that to you as a wonderful tool to help walk through the basics of the Christian uh, truth um, through a you have heard it said, but I say unto you format. Okay? He also says worship that combines ancient patterns of liturgy with cultural forms. Thirdly, he says a great use of the arts to tell Christian stories. Artists have this unique ability to tell stories uh, in ways which are helpful to us. And then finally, theological training of ministers and lay, lay leaders so that they can conduct these kind of practices. We've got to be about getting ourselves and the people that join our fellowship educated. So there's an emphasis on learning some of these things. All right. I got two and a half minutes for any kind of thoughts that people might want to throw out or clarifications from Tim Keller's uh, input here. Yes, Amy. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I think, when, I think he's referring to when Christ returns in that particular passage. Yeah. I think the day of visitation is the, um, yeah. I will say this. With Peter, it's almost always a challenge because he's, he, he speaks very flowery and very concretely in two different times. doesn't have sort of the unity of style like Paul has, but I think in that particular text he is talking about the ultimate parousia, the coming of Jesus. Yeah, Christina. I think it's uh, Missionary Encounters. Just search for Tim Keller Missionary Encounters. And I, I, I went directly through his outline. I gave you the substance of what he was talking about. Yeah, sure. Joel? Yes. That's right. Thursday, first week in, uh, in, uh, um, uh, in February, Keller's going to be in Memphis uh, at Hope Church. Uh, Hope Prez. used to be Hope Prez. Um, if you want to go he's somewhere close, I think it's a great thing to go see. All of his stuff is on audio. Uh, so you can definitely get to that as well. Yeah, Mike? It's amazing how God is open That's a perfect lead-in to our next two Sunday school lessons. So what, what, the first topic that I wanted to sort of tackle in applying church kingdom questions was the topic of evangelism. And so Keller's going to walk us through some evangelistic stuff over the next two weeks, and we'll dive super big into that. My one little thing I'll say to that is as we seek to I don't know if I would necessarily equate Oxford and New York, other than the fact that there's, there's a lot of skepticism because there's a university in our backyard, uh, and it's half the town. So, um, but that doesn't mean that we've got to be prepared in that sense. I just think the thing that I find the most compelling about Keller is not who he spoke to or um, who was drawn to Redeemer or the church or whatnot. What, what gets compelling about him is that he's made enemy, enemies on both sides. Um, liberals think he's a crazy fundamentalist. And in their eyes, he really is. Um, uh, fundamentalists think that he's, you know, uh, a liberal and has left the gospel, you know, because he's caring about the poor, because you're, now you're a social gospel person. So he, he defies categorization, and I just think that th- that to me rings true. You're probably doing it right when either the conservatives or the liberals think you're doing it right. That probably is a good guide. So that's a good question. Let me finish uh, simply by saying this. I want to say thanks to all of you uh, for all of your kind notes uh, and um, uh, 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 gestures that you made towards us this week. It got announced on uh, Tuesday, 
the, uh, what the, the results of the search committee and the conversations that we've been having for the last uh, many weeks, which have been uh, very gratifying, very encouraging to us. Uh, and I'll tell you that you know, in, the, <laughs> in the already and the not yet, um, uh, I'm already here and I'm, and I'm not yet here. That's sort of part of what we're going through. Uh, we definitely are feeling a sense of, of, I think, healthy mourning over the thought of not doing RUF after 24 uh, years in that ministry. Uh, but man, oh man, uh, has God been working in us over the last couple months, and I would say in the whole family, uh, with just an excitement to be getting to know y'all better. You know how it is. Like, you come to church, and you've got a small circle of friends, and suddenly the idea of being able to hear all of your stories uh, is really just, um, yeah, it, it's gotten us so hopeful and so excited about the future of being able to serve along with you uh, with Christ's prayers. So I just want to say thank you, and we are so excited. Uh, I, I'm going to finish out this next semester with Reform University Fellowship. Uh, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a family break, and hopefully this summer uh, things will move towards being a fit. Can I say that? I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Okay, I can say that. <laughs> I just said it, so there it is. It's, in, it's past. Um, Anyway, I, just, I really just want to make sure that we expressed uh, some early thanks as to this process and uh, just look forward to, um, uh, to getting to know you. So let me pray for us as we finish. Lord Jesus, give us the grace to uh, see clearly uh, what you would have us to do and be in Oxford, Mississippi, in our families, in our hearts, with these passions that wage against our souls. And help us, Father, to give wisdom. Uh, you said if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask because you give freely. But that we don't need to ask with a, with a, with a divided mind, uh, uh, being unstable in all of our ways, with a, with a certain mind that we want to know your heart. We thank you that we should be students of your word. We ask that we would be that so that we would be uh, well pre- uh, prepared to present this to the world. Um, we know there'll be persecution to come, but we also know there'll be those whose lives will be transformed. Uh, and what, what a great adventure it could be for us. And so do that, we pray, in all of us, uh, even beginning in a place like worship as we go into. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.